It may sound like a throwback, but for many folks out there, energy retrofitting is the it thing when it comes to reducing heat loss and energy costs. Fortunately for us, Ed Minch and Tom Marston, leading members of the nation's first energy retrofit company, Energy Services Group, join me today to discuss what this kind of work entails, how it all got started, and some of the pros and cons of energy retrofitting in terms of building preservation. Get ready to bundle up. This is PreserveCast. This episode of PreserveCast is brought to you by Howard Bank. Howard Bank, we're not just your branch, we're your roots. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Ed Minch and Tom Marston, both with Energy Services Group. And we're going to be talking about all things energy and energy retrofitting when it comes to historic buildings, which is a big topic and an important one, one that we get a lot of questions about here at Preservation Maryland. So, Ed and Tom, welcome to PreserveCast. Thanks, Thank Nick. You. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, great. One of the questions that we always try and open up these interviews with is we we love to get a sense for how people came to their careers and and to these little niches in historic preservation. And so we thought we would jump in with that. And maybe, Ed, if you want to take the lead on that and kind of give us the the story on, on how you found your way to what you're doing today. Fresh out of college in 1970, my brother graduated in 72, the two of us started building solar homes. If you remember, that was a, the big time for solar homes. And over the next eight years, I think we built seven or eight of them. And then he wanted to do just plain old architecture. He didn't want to get involved in construction anymore. So I looked around for something to do. And I found a group of Princeton University that had been given a lot of federal money. This was when Jimmy Carter was president in the late 70s to figure out how houses lose heat and what you can do about it. And through the late 70s and up to about 81, when I met them, they were developing an energy audit. Uh, They were developing mathematics that showed us better what insulation did, figuring out what air infiltration did, how much money you'd lose to just leakiness in the house. Understanding that, that they put together a set of tools. First of all, a big fan that fits in your front door. It's called a blower door. It sucks the air out of the house, which makes all the leaks leak inward. And as all that leakage comes through the house and out the door, you can measure it. So it lets you put a number to how leaky the house is. Second thing is they adapted the use of infrared equipment. Infrared lets you look at temperatures of items by color. So I can see a cold spot in a ceiling, missing insulation. I can see a cold spot around a window, which would be an air leak through the wall. I can see what's going on inside the walls. Uh, And they also looked at because your furnace was typically at the time never tuned up, very rarely tuned up, oil heaters, but never gas. They looked at the heating system too. They put together a package with a blower door, infrared scanner, and furnace analyzer. I saw them in National Geographic in 1981 in February. By the end of February, I'd been in an attic with them. And by April, I had purchased franchise number one. 
And is that Energy Services Group? That's Energy Services Group. So you're really probably one of the very first energy audit firms in the nation. We are the oldest in the country. We've been in in Wilmington, Delaware since 81. That's what, 36 years now. And that, and that, from day one, you were always in historic buildings as well? I mean... Uh, first historic building, we did a bunch of museums for the state of Delaware in 1984. Okay. So it goes back to that. So Tom, was your path similar? You on the ground floor during the Carter administration? Nick, I was on the path from the Carter administration, but in a different trajectory. I was at a utility at the time. Delmarva Power, Delaware, and they had a process called residential conservation services, send auditors out into the field to help homeowners diagnose energy problems. And I didn't have the education that Ed had with all of the equipment. Mine was mostly visual and perception of where the problem exists. So when I arrived at Ed's house, he contracted for the $15 audit. I showed up. I think I know what I'm talking about. After an hour, I realized I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And I'm highly trained. I have a certificate. And over the next nine years, I stayed very close to Ed, looked at what he was doing. He worked in my sister's new house under construction. And I basically learned that this process of visual inspection really doesn't hold up when you compare it to performance testing, a blower door, infrared. Today we do duct leakage testing. And it's much more vital that we actually measure the details. Now, I can look in an attic and say, you only have four inches of insulation. You should have 12 and make an economic justification for it. But I can't say the house is leaky without measuring with a blower door. So that morning sitting at Ed's breakfast table, and it's funny, his wife said, Ed, don't give the young man a hard time. <laughs> I, I later learned that his wife and his, her father and my mother had a relationship back in Wilmington. So it was very interesting how we blend our uh, history and our current practices. But I learned a lot from this man. I call him the doctor because he has a PhD, which we jokingly say is a Princeton House Doctor Certificate PhD. All little letters, though. And and Ed, is that PhD from Princeton? I have the training that I got through the franchise, but they didn't give you the certificate. So I have no PhD. PhD, Princeton House Doctor. Princeton House Doctor. Okay, you got me as well on that one then. (laughs) So energy retrofitting, I think that conjures up different concepts in different people's minds. What is it? What's the definition of it? How does Energy Services Group and Marston and Minch approach this? An energy retrofit looks at all the areas of the house that can lose energy and improves them as much as possible. We're always looking at the ideal. Where do we want to be? What, what should this house look like? And then we look at how close we can get to that economically. 
And the only way to figure this out is to do an energy audit. To reach a retrofit, you have to do an audit. And an audit includes looking at the air leakage uh, network in the house, the uh, insulation blanket that surrounds the house, and it looks at the heating equipment, ductwork, and so forth. And for about the last eight or 10 years, there have been some safety issues that have been included in the audit by the Building Performance Institute, the BPI, mm-hmm. or sort of the governing uh, entity over energy auditing in uh, this area, Middle Atlantic. So we look at uh, the safety of the combustion equipment. We look at mold, moisture, um, sources, repair those things that we need to before we tighten the house up and and proceed. So, now, is it any different? Do you approach it differently when it's a historic structure? Or are there different concerns that a historic property owner or a manager should think about as they're approaching that kind of work? The historic house is just an older home and has less insulation, maybe wood frame or masonry. And we have 1950s houses that are both wood frame and masonry. The historic overlay says we want you to limit your improvements in certain ways because we want to maintain the appearance. For example, windows is very contentious. We don't want you to take out that single pane wood window. We want you to do this with it. And we know we want higher performing glass in homes. We want to make sure wood isn't exposed to moisture. And when we tighten a house, we tend to get a more humid house. So if we leave a wood window in that's single pane, it has a great opportunity to be where all the moisture condenses because it's very cold in the winter. So really historic doesn't have any complication other than we would like you not to touch those things or make those, that visible part different looking. But I think that's an important point, though, to clarify, because I think there are some people, and I, I think that this is beginning to change, but there are, has been a thought out there that, well, my historic home is, is old, therefore it can't be energy efficient, or there's some limitation on my ability to do that. And I think that is beginning to change. But even if you leave your historic wood window in, which we here at Preservation Maryland would highly recommend. There are still other ways, obviously, of achieving uh, a higher degree of energy efficiency for a historic home. Working with a historic home, the audit is the same. The Mm -hmm. ideal is the same. But the way to get there is a little bit more complicated because you've got limitations. Some areas, Baltimore in particular, says that even in the interior, you can't change some things. Most places is just the exterior. Right. I'm on the Historic Commission in Chestertown, which has, they say, more 18th century buildings than any place in Maryland outside of Annapolis. And we don't look at the inside of the house. You can do what you want in there. You can tear down some walls or whatever you like. But it's the outside we're concerned with. As an example, in Baltimore, though, if I wanted to insulate a brick home, I'd have to increase the depth of the wall toward the interior. They don't want you to do that because as you walk by the front of the house and look through the window, you can see the additional depth of the wall. To me, that's just making it hard on someone who's willing to live in one of these old houses and fix it up. So let's talk a little bit about that. What if you do own a historic home and what, obviously it's, it all starts with the audit. We heard that uh, a couple times now, but from your experience with you know a historic brick home built in the 1840s, really no insulation, 
what are some of the common practices that you would employ to increase the energy efficiency of a place like that? Staying with Baltimore City, a lot of these 1840s homes are being taken back to their original structure. So a masonry wall, wood floor joists, wood rafters for the roof. And at this point, we're in the term gutted shell. So there is nothing that is off the table. We don't have any limitations unless we're not taking that house apart. On the brick exterior walls, we see three conditions usually. Mm -hmm. The first one is the interior plaster is right on the brick. You wrap on the wall and it feels like a rock, right? There's not much you can do with that. You have the insulation value of the brick, which is about one an inch. So an eight inch wall is R8, which isn't very much. We'd like to see in the current codes for new houses is an R20, which is more than double that. But if the plaster is right on the brick and you want to leave that, there's nothing you can do with it. The second thing is a narrow gap, a small furring strip gap, we call it. A three-quarter inch piece of lumber is nailed onto the wall. The plaster is hung on that, leaving a little tiny gap back there. We don't have a material that we can fill that with and guarantee you're going to get a good result out of it. The third result would be if you were rehabbing the house and gutted the wall and all you saw was the brick, you could build a two-by-four wall inside. That makes that thicker wall. You lose some floor space with that. But that allows us to make a modern wall out of the thing. And the way we do it in Baltimore, one way is to spray a two-part closed-cell foam over the inside of the wall, which creates a vapor barrier, which keeps moisture from moving from the outside in, which it can do. If it rains heavily outside, some of that moisture can end up inside. Right, because brick can actually kind of absorb that. And the foam will stop that right there. You threw a a phrase out there, which I think I'm familiar with, but maybe not all the listeners are, closed cell foam. What's the difference between a closed cell and an open cell foam? There's two types of foam. Uh, Closed cell foam is a good vapor barrier right from the get-go. Open cell foam, you need five inches. I believe it's five inches to get a vapor barrier. And we're not going to put on five inches anywhere in the house. Closed cell foam is much, much more expensive. Triple, sometimes triple the cost of an open cell foam. So we'd like to use it only where we need to use it. There's only very few places we need to use it. Inside this brick wall is one spot. We can put two inches of that on there. It's worth about an R6 or 7 an inch, which gives me about an R12 on top of the brick. Now I'm getting up there. Right. Then I build my 2 by 4 wall inside and put an R13 bat inside of that. Now i got a really good wall. It's airtight, which is the first thing we want. Every square foot of the house has to be airtight. And it's insulated, which is what we want. Every square foot of the house has to be insulated. So that's the ideal wall. We're looking at that. If Baltimore says you can't thicken the wall because they don't want to see it from walking by in the sidewalk, now you've got to come up with a different solution for that. Another way is to put a material that has drywall and a rigid foam board on it tacked right up to the wall. So you don't get a lot of depth increase out of it, but you get some R-value, increase in R-value to it. So, Ed, what exactly is R-value? R-value is a measure of how fast heat moves through an object. If I've got a uh, glass window in my car, I put my hand on the window, I can feel the outside temperature. It has a very low R-value. It lets the heat of my hand and the cold of the outside go through very quickly. If I add more material, I increase the R-value. If I double the R-value... I cut the heat loss in half. That's a very simple equation. 
So for our purposes in a historic house, a single pane window is R1. A double pane window is R2. That's why we do it, because doubling the R value has cut the heat loss exactly in half coming through that glass. If I go from a 2 to a 4, I cut it in half again. If I go from a 4 to an 8, I cut it in half again. By the time in our climate I reach about an R30, there isn't much left to gain. So right now the code says R49, a huge amount, 16, 18 inches of insulation in your attic. They require that. A thousand square foot of attic saves me about $10 a year over an R30 attic. To add 50% of the 30 on top of it, I'm only saving $10 a year. So once I reach about an R30, the rest is sort of gravy. It's not, it's expensive, it saves a little bit, but it's not very cost effective. So there is some practicality some associated practicality. with that. The more you have, the less you need. All right, well, we're going to take a break right here. And when we return, we're going to talk a little bit more about attics and what kind of work can be done there and, and the good and bad of en energy retrofitting. We'll be right back here on PreserveCast. And now it's time for a preservation explanation. As you may have heard Ed and Tom mention, they are in fact based in Delaware, not Maryland. I know what you're thinking. This podcast is by Preservation Maryland. Delaware, are you talking about Delaware? Well, the truth is, there is cool history stuff to be found wherever you look. So I thought I would take this as an opportunity to talk about some of the wild ways in which Delawareans have contributed to historic preservation. And not just any Delawareans. Today, I'm talking about the DuPont family. For those unfamiliar, the DuPont family and Delaware are tied closer together than possibly any family-state combination anywhere in the country. Pierre-Samuel DuPont de Nemours, the son of a Parisian watchmaker father, and a mother with a very minor noble connection, first emigrated from France in the year 1800. By 1802, he'd founded a gunpowder mill on the banks of the Brandywine River near Wilmington, Delaware. Today, the business he started is one of the biggest chemical and engineering companies in the world, and at one point employed 10% of the state's population. And you can still visit the site of the original mill as part of the Hagley Museum. The history of the DuPont family obviously helped to shape the landscape and the history of Delaware, as well as the United States as a whole. But in the 20th century, some members of the family decided to try and give back by helping to preserve American cultural heritage. Louise E. DuPont Cronenshield was a founding trustee in the National Trust for Historic Preservation in 1949 and vice chair in 1953. Louise was not the only DuPont to dedicate a large part of their time, energy, and fortune to making history and preservation available to the public at large. One of the other more significant family members was Henry Francis DuPont, Louise's brother, who had a personal passion for collecting pieces of American history, be they art, furniture, or any other miscellaneous Americana, at his family mansion, Winterthur. Having been opened to the public in 1951 by Henry before his death in 1969, the once-private, 175-room mansion is now a museum that houses one of the most valuable collections of Americana and fine art anywhere in the world, and is still open to the public. You know, Maryland's pretty great, but that mansion might warrant a quick trip next door. Of course, only after you finish listening to PreserveCast. 
Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org, and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. I'm with Ed Minch and Tom Marston of the Energy Services Group. And when we left, we, we just sort of uh, got a great definition of exactly what our value is. And we were talking about how you could insulate a brick wall and, and all the details associated with that and closed cell versus open cell foam. And one of the other big areas that people talk about a lot, I guess there's two that, that we hear about a lot here, one being basements and then, of course, the attic, the dreaded attic that is either always hot or is always cold. And we got a lot of questions here at the organization, and I'm sure other preservationists do around the country, about when you have a historic roofing material and you have sort of an uninsulated attic. It's a walk-in space. It has a full floor. Is there a pro-con to insulating that space? We heard from Ed that every inch of your historic home or any home for that matter should be insulated and there should be a vapor barrier and, you know, you want to keep, um, well, we're getting a no on that. So we shouldn't have a vapor barrier everywhere and I'm getting out of my depth of field. So why don't I turn it over to the experts here and tell me, what do you do in your attic? Well, Nick, I don't want to make my house bigger than I have to make it unless I'm going to live in that area of the house. Okay. And the last time I had a substantial attic, it was full of my stuff and my wife's stuff and her father's stuff. So I wouldn't go to that attic and say, I'm going to insulate the roof just so I can keep my storage stuff in a nice place. Mm -hmm. I'd put it in my basement. If I didn't have a basement, I would put it in a storage place or hopefully donate it back to useful purpose. So I have to have a valid reason to want to condition the attic. So I only put insulation in the roof when I have to condition that space. So if it's a full walk-in attic with a, you know, a laid floor and it is just being used for storage, you're not using that space, how do you insulate that then? I want to insulate the floor I'm walking on. Now, I can always take up the floor, and if I can't take up the floor because it's too much effort, I can cut holes in the floor and put an insulation in that cavity that is the ceiling joist. Okay. If that ceiling joist isn't deep enough to give me a reasonable R value, then I can start filling the cavity and then adding more insulation on top of it, either as a rigid product that I could walk on if protected, or as a loose felt. Depends on what I want to do up in that attic. Let's say I can't get it greater than, say, R30. And as Ed said, R30 is a pretty practical area. And if I went from zero to R30, I've made a significant change in the energy performance of that house. So I think the big takeaway is you want to make sure you, you have a reason to be insulating an attic. Don't just insulate an attic because you feel like that's the top of your house and it needs to be insulated. You want to condition the space that you're living in, not spaces you're not living in. Here's a way to look at this. Okay. We use the concept of the thermal envelope. It's heated on one side. It's not heated on the other side of the thermal envelope. And your energy bill that comes every month is based on 
energy lost through every square foot. So the fewer square feet you have, the lower your bill. The more square feet you have, the higher your bill. So if I can look at a space and say, I want that to be cold, then I have to insulate my living space away from it, like my floor into a cold basement or my ceiling into a cold attic. So I have to enclose the heated space completely, all six sides, top, bottom, left, right, back, front, with an airtight and insulated barrier. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I was laying this out before I started getting Ed shaking his head when I used the term vapor barrier. <laughs> Tell me about that. What What is a vapor barrier and why wouldn't you want it everywhere? I'll, I'd be willing to bet that 99% of the moisture problems that we have seen have been caused by a vapor barrier because you're locking moisture into the cavity. You want the wall or the ceiling, wherever it is, you want moisture to be able to move through it because it's going to get in there. It's going to get in from your interior, from the outside. You want it to be able to move. So you don't want a vapor barrier as such in there. So the thermal envelope should be airtight. It should be insulated. And it should prevent the weather from getting in. It should prevent outside water, bulk water, we call it, the, the gutters, the the site that you live on, all funneling water down into your crawl space. You want the bulk water to get away from the house. But then the vapor barrier becomes less and less important if you do that. Is there any good application for a vapor barrier? On your crawl space floor, your dirt floor. So that you're not getting like a rising damp. Right. The, the moisture, you can get, I think it's 18 gallons for a thousand square foot uh, crawl space a day. Wow. It doesn't even look wet. It's just the moisture rising through the floor. Well, I think the conversation we're having right now is kind of moving into an area where we wanted to talk, which is the bad of energy retrofitting. I, I presume, like a lot of reputable groups, you have been brought in after there has been an attempt made and you are there to fix things. And so people are spending now double, probably because they paid for the first job that didn't go so well. And now they're bringing in someone who has their 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 PhD, so to speak, as we covered before <laughs> in historic homes and, and energy retrofitting. So what are some of the areas where you would highly recommend people stay away from? What are some of the pitfalls of energy retrofits that you have seen over the years? You got one? Um, as you started with the crawl space, not understanding what you want that space to do. Do you want it inside because there's a mechanical, a heating, cooling system down there and ductwork down there? Do you want it outside and not choosing the right path? Because crawl spaces in our climate are large moisture producers in the wintertime. If we seal a building at the top and forget that the moisture, in some cases swimming pool below our house, is letting humidity evaporate into that warm house. We are going to have water in places we don't see, and we're going to see water in places that are obvious to us. Sweaty windows. House just feels wet and smells wet. Those are the first indications of you did this wrong. So you would say water tends to be the, the biggest issue, the, the, the biggest challenge, the problem. Rain hitting our house and moisture inside evaporating in is really what kills our homes. Wood rots. And we need to know where the water is coming from and going to. I think the most remarkable mistake I ever saw was a log house 
a brand new log house. A guy had built half a dozen of them in central Delaware. And we got called to one because brand new house promised to be very energy efficient. And the bills were high. The house was very uncomfortable. And you could see the logs on the outside. They had little notch corners. And you could see the logs on the inside. Very classy. But every corner, the logs had shrunk. And you could see daylight between the logs. And just walk your way right up the wall to the 13-foot ceiling. You could see daylight out of every one of those things. You turn on the blower door, the fan, and it measured, I forget, some phenomenal amount, 20 times what I wanted to see in the house. Plus, the man was sold that it met the code for insulation values. And logs like that have about an R1 an inch, and this was a 7-inch thick log. R7, the code was 13 at the time. Today, it's 20. So he had a lightly insulated, terribly unsealed house that looked great. It just looked fantastic. But no way. The other takeaway, I guess, is the worst thing you see is not getting the analysis done. I mean, if you don't know what you don't know, you're, you're never going to be able to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. So it really does start with mm-hmm. a really good analysis and audit of your historic home. So uh, do you have a, a follow-up on that? Yeah. yeah. Um, we work in as many new homes as we do uh, existing homes, homes under construction. And that includes an analysis of what you want to do compared to what maybe would be the ideal, as I mentioned before, or what you can do. So we'll be approached by a builder who has an interesting idea, and we can show them whether it works or not by an analysis, a numerical analysis. If someone's building or rehabbing an old, uh, an older home, a historic home, even putting an addition on the back, a lot of them are small, you have to enlarge them, we can get involved with an analysis during the construction or reconstruction of that historic home to help do something in the walls that makes sense to add on to it in an interesting way. So you can prevent someone from making a mistake with this kind of work as well. It's not just looking at, okay, you've made your mistakes. Now let's try and figure out how we fix them. There's actually a way of doing it in advance. Yes. I think that's interesting. I don't know if a lot of people are aware of that. And I think that that's just like you would go and consult with an architect and an engineer before you put a addition on your historic home. You probably want to go and talk with someone like Energy Services Group um, to figure out if what you're doing is going to be an efficient use of that space. And, you know, if you're going to have daylight in the non-existent chinking between your logs, so to speak. I have a small builder uh, that I work with in town who just built two houses on the same street, a block apart. And about a month ago, we had a very light snow. And I went out and took some pictures at seven in the morning before the sun had hit the snow and there was no wind. So the melting patterns on the roof are a great indication of what's happening in the attic of that house. So what can that tell you? What If someone goes out and looks at their roof and there's snow like this, what are you looking for? You're looking for melted snow. Okay. And that tells you you have an energy issue. Even a layman, you can pick out what's going on inside the house by the melting pattern of the snow. And this fella, this particular builder, has a way he wants to do stuff. And I'm slowly weaning him and weaning him and weaning him. These two houses, one of them wasn't done yet, and one of them is four months old had enormous areas on both of them where the snow had melted. So I showed him the pictures and he said, we got to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping we wouldn't have that problem, but he just did it his way and it didn't work out right. So let's talk just briefly about what you have seen in as far as changes since you know, you've been in this for several decades now. I mean, obviously the codes are changing. But has the technology changed as well? Are you seeing different applications, different things coming online? And are there things we should be looking for in the next five to 10 years as well? Nick, 
In the case of the code, it actually caught up to what was learned and studied in the early 80s. And the process is almost identical. Today, we are required in the state of Maryland and a few other states in the nation that every building will have a performance test at completion. Certify that the building's tight enough. Certify that the ducts are tight enough if the ducts are outside the building envelope, not in the attic, not in the vented crawl space. And that's the same tool that Ed was starting to use in the early 80s to diagnose and repair existing buildings. We've just fine-tuned the process. We know it 30 years more of data to say, well, here's a slightly better way to do it, or here's understanding HVAC. Because a blower door and a duct blaster, a term for the duct testing device, is identical in its concept. We just put one on the duct system, forced air systems, and we put one on the house. It's the same technology. Now, what about the technology that's actually used to make the changes? I mean, the foams and the rigid boards, and are those getting better? Or are, they, are they changing quickly? Or is it staying pretty static? I mean, what are we seeing there? We're using almost exactly the same materials we used in the early 80s. Almost exactly. A foam that looks like shaving cream that comes in a can. We get it in bigger cans than you can buy at Home Depot. And rigid styrofoam to seal over larger holes, just foaming caulk in some places. Uh, this foam board, this rigid styrofoam to cover larger holes. But it's basically been that for 35 years. We're not expecting to see big changes there? doesn't seem like you it? You just seal the hole the cheapest way you can. Okay. <laughs> fiberglass is fiberglass. Yeah. We've gotten slightly different densities in them. So where we talked about an R11 bat in my 2x4 wall, mm -hmm. well, we now put an R15 bat. So it's so, getting slightly better that way, but not big changes. Correct. Yeah. And interestingly, the retrofits we do today... We'll go into someone's home and tighten it up a little bit and insulate where he hasn't got insulation. That level of retrofit is, let's call that level one. Right. Well, level two costs about 10 times as much. And what's that? Level two is called a deep retrofit in which you take off the siding on the outside of the house, take out the windows, seal the heck out of the thing, put about two, three, maybe even four inches of rigid foam on the outside of the house, put new siding on, new high-performance windows, and you've essentially built what's a zero-energy house today out of an existing home. That cost about forty grand, as compared to about $4,000 for the conventional retrofit that we do today. And obviously, we're not in love with the idea of taking off your historic windows. We would fight you on that one, and you probably would fight uh, someone in Chestertown on the same thing. But it sounds like you could probably get pretty darn close to zero-energy, even in a historic home, by doing some things. You're never going to get that bill down to the level of a new house. Right. That's, that's very hard to do, especially in a brick home. That's hard to do unless you're able to do the gut rehab and build out on the interior. Mm -hmm. But you can make it considerably more comfortable by cutting drafts down by sealing the house up. And Nick, one other area that we never think about, we've talked about heat loss and heat gain. Right. Energy moving through the building. But as humans, we purchase energy to light our homes, to entertain us, to keep our food. 
to wash our clothes. This is what we call base load or plug load. And the only way to offset that, since we're going to assume we're going to use it, is we've got to make energy, electricity generally is what we think about doing, and we do it with photovoltaic panels, PV panels up on the roof. Are we going to allow that in a historic retrofit? And that's the only way we have to offset that energy need with an alternative solution. Right. And I know in a lot of historic districts around the state, they're either have developed or they're in the process of developing new guidelines to allow for that. Cause I think that there's a recognition that we need to have both, that we want to have these historic communities that have this kind of charm and character, but we also don't want to prevent people from being able to generate those things on site. And so if you can put them on the the non-public side, the backward facing roof of a historic structure. And I mean, there's, there's definitely interesting things. And then, you know, obviously some of it is slick marketing, but we're even seeing with Tesla and some of these photovoltaic roof systems where it's actually the shingles themselves are producing things. And I think that that's one area of technology where I suspect we'll be seeing big advances in the next 10 to 15 years. Ed, why don't you speak to the PV community grid that you developed State of Maryland is the first state in the union to have what's called aggregate billing. It used to be the utilities didn't want to see solar. They didn't want, they didn't want a competition from your roof generating some electricity. They were forced to do it. So now they're forced to do it. What are they going to allow you? Most utilities allow you to run the, the meter backwards so that you reduce the energy on a sunny day when you use it overnight when there's no sun. Every utility is a little bit different. Some allow you to take that credit. Some will give you a check. Some won't allow you to take that credit. But they always wanted that to be the same meter. Well, in Maryland, now I can take a dozen neighbors in my neighborhood, lease an acre of farmland outside of town, put solar cells on the farmland, and the utilities required to reduce my bill by my contribution that they got from that separate meter out in the middle of the farm field. They don't want to do it, but they're required to do it now. So now we don't need it on the roof. We just need a group of people to, to get together and uh, and buy some farmland or lease some farmland and do it out there. Or maybe not farmland. We, we we like to preserve that around here as well. So maybe we'd find an old desolate parking lot. How about that? Can we settle on that? <laughs> you can do a, far, a farmland <laughs> and still get 80% of the productivity out of it by spacing it properly. Yeah. Interesting. But think of Texas. I mean, I, we're moving outside of Maryland, but imagine parking your car in Texas on a hot day. Wouldn't you want some shade? Right. Sure. Build shade, put solar panels on the roof. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you're done. Well, this has been really fascinating. So we don't let anyone leave the studio without giving us some insight into their favorite project or their favorite building that they've worked on. So we're going to give you both a crack at this, whoever wants to go first. Ed? I had the great privilege to work in the home of John Dickinson, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and instrumental in writing all of those documents right around the time of the revolution. It's just north of Dover, and it's a beautiful 18th century home, two-story, big mansion-y looking thing. And we had to get in overnight because it was open as a museum at 10 o'clock in the morning. We started at three in the morning, two of us in the attic, and we actually heard footsteps walking down the hall below us when we were alone in the house at four in the morning. So I remember that for the rest of my life. <laughs> and did you make it more comfortable, more energy efficient? I'm told they saved a bunch on the bill, well, that's but I good. don't know if the docents noticed the difference in efficiency. <laughs> and Tom, how about you? 
Nick, I'm enjoying working in Baltimore City, working on the early 1900s homes that are being repurposed. And it's enjoyable because I know these houses are going to be occupied for 40 or 50 years with new families. Small plug for a builder, Station East is the community, and it's part of the Johns Hopkins Redevelopment Zone. And it's really nice to see the city coming back to life. And so now we're working in a 100-year-old house and making it far more energy efficient than it was when it was originally built. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you both in here. I know it's uh, answered a lot of questions for me and hopefully for the listener. And we appreciate all that you do to help Marylanders and, and those beyond the state save some money, make their historic homes a little bit more comfy and help our environment out in the process. So thank you both for joining us. If someone wants to get in touch with you, why don't you give us a plug for Energy Services Group? How do they get a hold of you? By the website, energysvc.com, phone number 800-908-7000, toll free, get you anywhere in the United States. My email is Tom, spelled T-H-O-M, at Energy SVC. Ed is Ed at Energy SVC. Awesome. Thank you both for being here with us. Thank you, Nick. Thanks. Loved it. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation, Technology, and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation, Technology, and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Ben and Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.